Welcome to the Doyen of Death podcast, funeral planning for those who don't plan to die. It's all about end-of-life issues and getting the conversation started about our 100% mortality rate. This series is hosted by Gail Rubin, certified thanatologist and the Doyen of Death. A Doyen is a woman who's considered senior in a group and knows a lot about a particular subject. Well, that's Gail. She knows all about creating the party no one wants to plan, a funeral or memorial service. She discusses the changes death can bring, and she'll make you laugh. This series includes episodes previously released as A Good Goodbye, a treasure trove of evergreen podcasts about funeral planning issues. This podcast reveals some of the mysteries and shares advice and tools that can reduce stress at times of grief, minimize family conflict, and help create a good goodbye. Remember, just as talking about sex won't make you pregnant, talking about funerals won't make you dead, and your family will benefit from the conversation. So, here to talk about the subjects we sometimes avoid is author, speaker, and the doyen of death, Gail Rubin. Near-death experiences are experiences that happen when a person is either clinically dead, near death, or in a situation where death is likely or expected. And today, with today's medical treatments able to save so many individuals who might have otherwise died, people return from these traumatic events with remarkable stories and insights. Now, this prompts me to ask the question, could having a near-death experience reduce fear of death and perhaps of funeral planning? I'm uh, pleased to have on the show with us today Lee Whitting, representing the International Association for Near-Death Studies. He's their publications director and also hosts, I guess, a radio show on near-death experiences. Lee, welcome to A Good Goodbye. Well, thank you, Gail. It's good to be here. So, Let's talk a bit about near-death experiences and what they are and what they do to people who have experienced them. You yourself have uh, experienced a near-death experience early in your life. I did. I was about uh, seven, seven or actually, it's funny, I say seven and my sister tells me I was eight when it happened, but I <laughs> wandered too far into a lake. I was wading into the lake. I didn't know how to swim, which is ridiculous. Every child that age should know how to swim. <laughs> and um, my mo- my mother, who had been watching from the shore, had gone into the cottage to uh, to change. And I went out too far. I the the bottom of fell out from under me. I went down once. I came up and screamed. And fortunately, my mother heard me. But uh, as I screamed, I completely emptied my lungs, which is the absolutely the wrong thing to do, and of course I went down to the bottom of the lake. However, <laughs> I watched from up in a birch tree because my soul, or consciousness, or mind, whatever you want to call it, was up in a birch tree watching as my mother ran down to the shore, dove in in her pretty red dress. She probably didn't expect to be going swimming that, at that moment, found me, dragged me out, threw me face down over a log, and sort of invented CPR because this was a long, long time before CPR was was being taught. Pumped on my back, as she said later, trying to get the water out of my lungs. In the meantime, I was up in this birch tree just watching this whole thing, and I, I saw off to the, to the right that there was a, a light, and I, could, I knew somehow 
you know, automatically that I could go there. But my, there was my mother, and she was very upset, clearly, and I was, you know, seven years old, and I thought, well, I better not leave my mother. So then I was back in my body. Wow. Some and people have much, I was going to say, much more profound NDEs than that, and I can tell you about that mm -hmm. if you'd like. Well, yes. Um, so a near-death experience, how, how are they perceived by different people? Well, it's interesting. Uh, scientists uh, are only now beginning to get interested in it. Uh, up until uh, Raymond Moody wrote his book in the, back in the 70s, and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and Raymond Moody uh, together founded the um, IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies, along with several other people. Um, before that, it, was, it wasn't really talked about, uh, although they must have been going on. The earliest story that I know about of near-death experience was written by Plato, 400 B.C., about a soldier named Ur who died in the battlefield, was carried back, uh, and 12 days later, when he was on, they, they were about to light the funeral pyre to, to um, consume his body, he suddenly sat up and he said, I've been sent back to tell you what happens when we die. Wow. And the story, <laughs> Plato goes on, this is in the Republic, at the end of the Republic, um, Plato goes on to say, so this is what Ur described. And he described um, going into sort of an Elysian field uh, with, the, with the other soldiers who had died with him. And uh, they come to a, a river and they're, they're, um, uh, they're supposed to drink from it at some point so that they will forget their past life and go on into their next life. But he's told not to. Uh, because he's supposed, he's going to go back and tell people about what death is all about. And he said they come to a, there's a door that leads down into a sort of a, a temporary, like a purgatory where you repent for your sins if you're, if you're judged to be necessary, you know, if the, you're judged that it, you need that. There's another door that goes up to a sort of a temporary heaven or a very pleasant place. And that's a temporary thing, too. And then after those um, experiences, the people from the heaven and the people from the purgatory wind up together in this beautiful Elysian field together, sharing the conversation. You know, a lot of them were friends on, in, on Earth before. And, and, uh, and then they plan their next life, and off they go. Wow. So this was an early, early story about this. But in many ways, it reflects what uh, people have experienced uh, you know, and are, are experiencing today. Uh, I, I, as I mentioned to you, I'm a chaplain at, um, at a hospital in Maine. I was mm -hmm. talking to a young man today who had, um, had been unconscious after driving his car into a tree. And uh, really, I mean, it was very, very close to death. And he said, and I, so I said to him, because I do this with all the people I encounter who are close to death. Well, what what did you see on that on the other side? Did you do you remember anything? And he said, and suddenly his eyes brightened. He said, Yes. He said, I I was I had a conversation with my father, and apparently his father had died when he was very young, and uh, and when his father was young too. He didn't remember the details of the conversation, but I'm sure his father and I told told the boy this. I'm sure his father told him. Next time, don't be drinking and driving, and next time, wear a seatbelt. But I think, you know, an experience like that, um, because, I mean, this, this almost, in, 
you know, in, in the ongoing conversation I had with him, it was, it almost seemed to, to him that it was worth, it was worth having destroyed his car and nearly losing his life just to be able to have talked to his, his father. So, wow. Anyway, <laughs> so there's much there's much more that goes on after we do our good goodbyes. There is so much more that goes on with us and with um, the people we love after well, that on the on the other side. And and there are so many people that I talk to who feel like death is a wall as opposed to a window or a door to something else that mm-hmm. when when you die you hit the wall and that's it you are no more but near death experiences seem to indicate that it's really more of a transition a window or a door to something else well it is i mean our deaths are we i firmly believe not well, I guess it's more than belief since I've been over there that we are we are eternal beings that we have souls or consciousness or a mind as opposed to a brain. And uh, even though there are still many scientists who say, "Oh, the near death experience is no, nothing more than a phenomenon of the dying brain and imagination that you know that you're having the the tunnel and the light that people claim to see. Oh, it's just the dying of the optic nerve." And uh, so that it's narrow, it's a narrowing of the of your perception of light. There have been so many near deaths with what they call veridical experience experiences that have um, undeniable information comes back with the person. Uh, for example, this is a very common experience: a patient is being operated on in the operating room. His heart stops. His soul leaves his body is floating up above the scene, looking down, watching the doctors, hearing everything the doctors and the nurses are saying to each other, watching the doctors trying to, you know, doing CPR, trying to get the heart started again. Um, then you may drift into the next room or down the corridor. They uh, are with their families and they hear conversations uh, about, you know, how upset they are that this is going on. Uh, they And later... When all of this is done and they, that they're restored to their bodies, they'll say, oh, yes, doctor, I, I heard that. I heard you say this, and I heard her say that. And they'll talk with their families and say, well, how are we going to divide up the estate? <laughs> uh-huh. so you've got to be very careful <laughs> in your conversations because some people have changed their minds about how they're going to write their wills simply because um, – uh, they heard how their re- relatives were reacting to their near death. Interesting. Um, we're going to go to a break here in another minute or so, but um, one of the things that struck me, you're, uh, you've gone on to do some really remarkable, wide-ranging things uh, f- from uh, over the course of your life. I mean, you were... Raised Catholic, but you went to Presbyterian Sunday school, and yes. you, you studied Buddhism and at Columbia University. Yes, and then and then uh, I was a Quaker during the uh, Vietnam War and protested wow. and marched. Um, so, yes, so you've got a, a, a wide ranging spiritual background. Well, yes, and I think it's it's uh, really important for chaplains to have that because they're dealing with people of all different faiths. 
And so I, yeah. I feel like I feel very fortunate to have come to the career that I've got now. And um, when when we come back from the break, uh, we'll continue our conversation about um, near death experiences or NDEs, if we want to use shorthand, uh, and also talking about the value of chaplains in hospitals. Because and you know I have my own family experience we can talk about as well. Uh, we're talking with Lee Whitting with the International Association for Near-Death Studies, and we're going to take a quick break here, and we'll be right back. You're listening to A Good Goodbye. Gail Rubin, the doyen of death, has been producing Before I Die festivals for years. These festivals get end-of-life planning conversations started by putting the fun in funeral planning. Outside-the-box activities break down barriers to discussing death and planning for our 100% mortality rate. And now, Gail has created the Before I Die Festival in a Box, the comprehensive guide to producing your own community festival. It includes everything you need to create a successful event. How to find sponsors, build a team, market the event, schedule speakers, topics for discussion, workshop ideas, and much, much more. To learn how to get your Before I Die Festival in a Box, visit BeforeIDieFestivals.com or call 505-265-7215. Welcome back. We're speaking with Lee Whitting representing the International Association for Near-Death Studies, and we're talking about near-death experiences. So, Lee, um, one of the things that I noticed on the uh, website for IANS is that you can have a pleasurable near-death experience or a distressing near-death experience. I I read um, Eben Alexander's book, uh, Proof of Heaven, and it seems to me in his seven-day coma, he went through both pleasurable and distressing near-death experiences. I, I think, yeah. are you familiar with his book? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, uh, Evan has been to several of our uh, IONS conferences, so I've talked with him several times, mm-hmm. and uh, he's, he's, he told us that um, the, uh, the book that you read, Proof of Heaven, is only about mm-hmm. a third of the book that he wrote. Uh, because the publisher only wanted to deal with this sort of extraordinary experience and not the ramifications of it. But he's working now on researching uh, consciousness, the nature of consciousness. I mean, he, he's, a, he's a very bright guy, and he just didn't it, want to leave it just as an interesting story. There are many, many interesting NDE stories out there. He wants to find out what, what's really going on and what's the what's the nature of consciousness versus the nature of the brain, which, of course, as a neurosurgeon, he was completely familiar with. But he, um, he, wa- he wants to see how the two interact. And, um, and we have other people. Um, on my uh, radio show just the other day, I interviewed Robert Mays, who's on the board at IONS, and he's doing the same kind of research with his wife, Suzanne. So at IONS, we're not only trying to provide comfort for those people who've had a, a near-death experience, either be it either a, a pleasurable or distressing, um, but we're also we're also involved in the research aspects of it too. But okay, you asked the difference between a 
a good and a bad NDE. We call mm-hmm. the, the bad ones DNDEs, which are distressing near-death experiences. And I think in many ways, um, Eben's ex- experience is uh, similar to many people's experience. They start out with um, a dark and maybe fearful experience, and it can be either, oh, f- flying alone through space, feeling like they're, um, that there's, there's no hope, there's no friendship, there's no love for them. And then, uh, or in Evan's case, he felt like he was going through a, a, a dark, red, mushy, kind of swampy um, experience uh, where, where it was all chaos and turmoil. And what, what other people have talked about seeing flames, although uh, they may have, their memory of their experience may be colored by their religious upbringing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that sort of thing. But it's always, uh, or almost always, seems to um, wind up like Evans going from that to a better experience. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, he came into a, a beautiful garden with flowers opening and uh, butterflies, and uh, of course you, you read the book. And he he meets mm-hmm. on this butterfly. He said there was this angel on the on the other wing of the of this. Uh, enormous butterfly that they were flying on together and, um, and through this beautiful garden and and she told him that he he everything was going to be all right he had nothing to be afraid of he was going to go back and later on as the story evolves uh, I'll, I'll give away <laughs> I'll give away the story spoiler alert <laughs> <laughs> he he discovers that this beautiful angel that he was flying on the butterfly with was um, a long lost sister that he had no knowledge of and uh, when he's shown this a picture at you know at long after this experience uh, he he realizes that that's that who that the was on the butterfly that was the girl wing. yeah on the butterfly wing um, distressing you know i i think well there's some other aspects to this too now i mentioned the uh, the plato story about some people going into a into a purgatory-like spot. Um, there are some theories uh, that some, you know, we all hear ghost stories, stories about people who are sort of stuck in a house or stuck mm-hmm. on a, in a situation um, after they die, that they're, they're confused perhaps or uh, lost and still on the earthly plane. Mm-hmm. And there have been so many verifications of ghost stories that it, I mean I don't know even why people question that they're that they're you know oh there can't be ghosts I, I don't understand how people can deny, deny the, the the existence of ghosts because almost everyone almost every family has had experiences with ghosts I myself lived in a in a house that was haunted by a ghost um, and so I, I think that that's maybe maybe this is one dark aspect that people have to go through, given their life situation, given what they did or didn't do in their lives, that they're stuck for a while. Or maybe they're here on voluntarily trying to help someone. And, you know, time sort of stands still, I think, when when you're in the spirit realm. I don't believe that time has the same quality as it does for us here. I don't know if it's, you know, if, if it's only one way and linear or whether things get condensed or blown up, it's 
very hard to say. But in any event, uh, a ghost, it might seem to a ghost that he's only in this house, for instance, for uh, an instant. Whereas for the person whose house is being haunted, they may feel like the, the ghost has been there for years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, but it may, but it, everything seems to be temporary. You know, they used to talk about going to heaven forever, going to hell forever, or going to purgatory as a way to get to heaven forever. But um, it seems through the experiences of those people who are coming back from near-death experience that, that things are much more transitory than that. And um, it, one interesting thing is that people who go over, uh, even briefly, come back with a much much more conviction that we are, um, that we reincarnate, that we don't just go somewhere and, and we're there for, you know, for one time. We don't go to heaven and stay in heaven. Uh, at least we have the capacity or the the offer is made to us that we can come back and do something more on earth. So there's all these different levels of, of experience. Paul, St. Paul, when he died, he talks about going to the third heaven. He, St. Paul had a near-death experience, and I, uh, you know, as a religious person, I feel that he probably learned a lot about what God wanted him to do through that through that near-death experience. And he went. He said to the third heaven. Well, you know, there. If you look back into a lot of the traditions, including Eastern traditions, they talk about eight levels of heaven, eight possible different dimensions. And uh, scientists too now are talking about. Oh, we have. 11 dimensions or whatever you know that 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 understanding of the universe as being uh, possibly existing on many different planes and dimensions uh, kind of fits into these old stories about uh, where you go when you die mm. so what as a chaplain in a hospital you see a lot of families dealing with death and um, is your experience or what you have to offer spiritually helpful for the person who's dying or or their family? I, I think hospitals that don't have chaplains on staff are missing an important aspect of healing and also an important aspect of dying. Uh, chaplains, by by their very nature, are have to deal with. The, they're not denominational. I mean, I'm I'm an ordained congregational minister, but I deal with Baptists and Buddhists and pagans and Wiccan and atheists. And I, you know, and even in a family, if some relative is dying, you will encounter families that are from all different faiths. You know they. Maybe they were raised Catholic, but now one of them is a Buddhist and one of them is, a, is something else, and, and many of them have given up faith altogether. The chaplain should have the ability to pull the family back together in a way that makes them um, unify behind the person who is dying, give them that spiritual energy that, that they need. It's almost like the way the Tibetans chant, you know, at the dying of a, you know, and there's a whole book, book Tibetan Book of the Dead, which describes the, the process and so forth, but it's a, it's a cooperative, almost communal, and certainly f- familial um, 
duty to be with the person who is dying and to help them transition to the other side. And so then, and people don't have any teaching along those lines, even, even you know, everybody that's, you know, still of the same denominational faith uh, don't, for the most part, have any idea about what they should be doing uh, as, as their mother or their grandmother is dying. And so a chaplain can be there to say, all right, let's all join hands and pray. And, and, and pray in such a way that they all feel included and um, that they're all that they're all part of a bigger picture than the petty squabblings that go on in families. And one of the great things about doing this um, and going through this is that many uh, families are reconciled to one another. You know, they, have, they Uncle Harry and and you know this nephew had might have been battling over some silly thing years ago, and the family was split up. On, a, on that account and, you know, or somebody did something that offended somebody else. All of those things can be forgotten really quickly in light of death. As the death is taking place, people finally, finally can get reconciled and sons and fathers are reunited and chaplains can be uh, very important in that process. That is awesome. We are going to go to another break here. Uh, We'll be right back. Gail Rubin, the doyen of death, is the author of three award-winning books. In A Good Goodbye, Funeral Planning for Those Who Don't Plan to Die, Learn How to Save Money, Reduce Family Conflict, and Minimize Stress at a Time of Grief. Just as talking about sex won't make you pregnant, talking about funerals won't make you dead, and your family will benefit from the conversation. Kicking the Bucket List, 100 Downsizing and Organizing Things to Do Before You Die, brings a light touch to downsizing and organizing for end-of-life issues. And Hail and Farewell, Cremation Ceremonies, Templates and Tips, helps you easily create meaningful memorial services with sample scripts, suggested readings, and music recommendations. These fine books by Gail Rubin, The Doyen of Death, are available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. For more information, visit agoodgoodbye.com. Thanks for listening. This is part one of our two-part episode. Stay tuned for part two coming next week. Thank you for joining us on the Doyen of Death podcast. You can find episodes of this podcast and past episodes of A Good Goodbye with Gail Rubin on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information on Gail's work, visit agoodgoodbye.com. Goodbye.com.